Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop place for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm a very frazzled Miguel Delaney. Well, I can understand why you're <laughs> frazzled. You can explain that in just a moment or two. Uh, the question is, on today's podcast, is the battle for the heart and soul of European football over? Have the big threes of Spain and Italy learned the lesson of the English big six? Or is this a battle of two halves? And after playing their losing hand, do Europe's big boys still have a leg to stand on in their continuing tug-of-war with UEFA? And we'll also head to Germany, where Bayern will be wondering what's next for them after Hansi Flick bids them Alf Fiedersein Pep. Miguel, do you want to kick this one off? You are you look frazzled as well, by the way. It's been, it's been a long week. Yeah, I haven't slept much. In it, but yeah. It's genuinely, uh, I mean, obviously from a football side, I think it's been utterly historic. Uh, from a journalism perspective, it's the most intense week I've ever had. It's like we've gone through, I mean, you know, Andy, you'll know at the end of a tournament when you have that tournament fatigue and you're just, because you know, all these early starts and going through it, it feels like I've had a full international tournament in the space of four days and it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Cool. Yeah. That's a scary prospect, Andy. Yeah, that's over. That's that's true. I, I I think it's actually a good prospect that it's not over yet because I think this would be dangerous. People who have the good of European football at heart, people who really have the the, the good of European football at heart, to say we've seen off the Super League challenge. That's it. I think for the moment, the most interesting bit is how it's fallen to bits so quickly Miguel I mean I, I was I was on air on Sunday night when it when it broke and um, we knew it was coming and you know mm. the, the amount of conversation that's come out of it all over Europe even in I, I, I want to say a country like Spain actually and of course Real Madrid and Florentino Perez were a, a huge driver behind it but what interested me so much is that the consternation here in the UK was not matched in Spain. No, no. I think in Spain where there's an understanding of Real Madrid and Barcelona's yeah. status and also where fans are a little bit more beaten down. Yeah, yeah that's, because pretty, that's pretty true. In, in terms of uh, television and kickoff times and all the sort of things that we see as emergency measures here at the moment, the fact that you can watch all the games in a row, that has been best practice in inverted commas in Spain for absolutely ages. You know, I remember Radamel Falcao talking about the uh, 11 o'clock um, PM kickoff times. And he said, well, this is past my bedtime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you know the, the, the lack of regard for fans there has been such for such a long time that, you know, if there was going to be a leader, it kind of made sense that it would be in Spain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I thought it was quite interesting as well that even Marca, they... Uh, he was yesterday. They almost mar- their front page almost marvelled at the power of the English clubs, and it actually reminded me of the way here in England we sometimes marvel at the power of the German clubs. And I think that's what mm. this moment was uh, for English supporters. And I mean, it showed the kind of that that, that German impetus. So supporters rather than club. When you talk of power, yeah, supporters. supporters yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, and like. Yeah, I think I think you're completely right about that that ap- apathy. Uh, and but I suppose again, there's also the whole there's basically the media industrial complex around the big two in Spain as well. Yes, that's which, true. Which creates a kind of a, a slightly different uh, dynamic. What do you mean? 
media industrial complex. <laughs> but wait, I mean, there's all this kind of this infrastructure uh, around the big. I mean, you, the very fact you've got two newspapers each and multiple radio stations that are just devoted to the coverage of Madrid and Barcelona. And of course, they're like semi-official mouth, yeah, mouthpieces. Yeah. And if if you look at you know previous situations, look at look at Gareth Bale, for example, eventually being marginalised and eventually leaving Real Madrid. The amount of briefing in these newspapers about Gareth Bell, where the whole golf thing comes out of, how does you liking golf get spun as, you know, you being non-committed yeah. to, your, to your club? Through intense repetition. That's how. It's ridiculous. But that is the sort of power that the media around Real Madrid and Barcelona have, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so the dichotomy, and I'm sorry to cut you, Miguel, I do want to flesh all of this out. The dichotomy is that um, whereas in England, the fans seem to have the power, clearly in Spain, at least, and we'll come on to Italy in a moment or two, in Spain, at least, the media industrial complex shores up the power of the clubs. Yeah, completely. And it's it's been a dynamic in Spain for much longer. And it's something that we probably, we've belatedly seen with the rest of the super clubs, which is why, which is why, and it really is why this Super League was announced, even though thankfully it never got off the ground. But like from Spain, like I mean, my mother's from uh, Navarra, uh, so our local team are Osasuna. But mo- mo- most of the like most of the kids I would have known growing up, and a lot of people in Spain, they would have had basically their local team, but also one of Barca and Madrid, and that's always been the way. It's like yeah. those two on top of everything else, and that's I mean it, that's I mean that was mentioned by Perez and Agnelli this week and all their plans for Super League. It's it's what the super clubs are very conscious of, and it's happened with the big six, where it's almost like everyone has one of these twelve or fifteen clubs, if you like, that they also support as well as their local team. But the super clubs are starting to supersede the rest of it, and and, and the driving force behind this. And I have to say, it's why I was quite uh, at the start of the week. I was pessimistic about this. I thought it would work. That it, or I thought, sorry, I thought through sheer force of numbers, they would get it through. Basically, because. I mean, the reality is they have hundreds of millions of engaged consumers, as they put it, I suppose, around mm. the globe or non-legacy fans. Um, <laughs> but, that, that always seems to be something of a euphemism uh, to talk about money, uh, non-legacy yeah. fans. It's, it's, me, it's but, as if really the, the not just the presentation of the Super League, but the comments of its leaders it feels like it's scripted by Nathan Barley these mm. these buzz phrases are absolutely unbelievable even by corporate standards but I think the interesting thing is we can talk about fan power here it feels like an a, an epiphanous moment in England because English fans to me have certainly in recent times not really understood how much power they've got. Yeah, yeah. And certainly in terms of unity. And it's always petty squabbles over territory. Whereas for the first time here, fans, and especially fans of the big clubs, are together. And, you know, clubs, you know, the, the biggest clubs get a little taste of that. And they're, oh, hang on. Now, I do think still what's far more important in this falling apart is A, the fact that these 12 clubs by their nature, are intrinsically selfish and therefore have very diverse interests, which is how cracks and fissures develop very quickly. But I think you you can't look... You talked about German culture there. And the fact that Bayern and Dortmund come out really quickly and say, we're out, because there's so much mobilised fan power there and because it's it's just too difficult. Yeah. 
it's, it's too culturally difficult for it to happen. If they thought they could get away with it, would they be on board? Yeah, I think so. What, what, but, what it, but they know they can't. What I particularly liked this week actually about was um, Bayern released our first statement, which which was I thought was quite strong on face value. And then I like I had a German journalist actually uh, message me separately saying, "Oh, we we think this is a bit weak. It's it's a bit too yeah, it's a bit exactly. interpretation." They're not saying anyone ever ruled. So then I, I thought it was so pointed that Bayern basically they made a point of releasing a second statement just to make it unequivocally clear we will never join the Super League. Um, and it, it, that has to do, doesn't it, with the the way that the if you like the cultural crown jewels of football are regarded in Germany as being a a, a fan's experience um, and the ownership of the clubs being well, but slightly it, it's, different. It's, 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 it's not just a fan experience. And, it's, and, and they're not just football teams. They're not, they're not just an entity to play football entertainers. They are crew, they're representations of community. It's something yeah. much more intrinsic and deeper. And it's something that was really finally hammered home in England. And like I was, I was outside Stamford Bridge literally as the news came through, Chelsea pulled out. It was... Amazing, and you. Uh, it was amazing yeah. because I saw the footage, and you can see Miguel on the edge of the hands <laughs> get it through on his phone. He's like, "It's off." Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> That's why you're frazzled, isn't yeah. it? Like Miguel is Truman, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was such a visceral moment, though. Uh, it was incredible, and and and, and, it, and it, it was like you couldn't have a clearer indication of what what a football club actually means. Just this community of people, you know, initially so vociferously angry against this grotesque idea that basically takes it away from what it means to them to then uh, at last I mean e- and even if there are I know we'll get into this and there's been a lot of discussing discussion about you know whether football where anything's actually changed well it, it was it was a victory for fans um, and, and I emphasise what, what these clubs really are it, it, it was a victory for fans in some regions here yeah, primarily in, in England maybe not necessarily a victory for fans in Spain as you've intimated and we'll talk about Italy as well here in England the government got involved yeah because like you say uh, with Germany they recognize that these clubs aren't just entertainment they are a fundamental part of the fabric of the society or the community mm-hmm. local communities in spain that doesn't seem to have been um a thing that the government think hang on no we're going to stop this rather than the fans or we're going to get a, a part of it and what about in italy the seems to be i don't know why the, well, no, to, be, the, to be fair in italy from what i'm told i think i think Vivera has been reported in the italian press um the the other Serie A clubs was a, was were as furious as the England clubs, maybe even more so. Did, did you hear the story about that? I think it was on Monday they all they held a Serie A conference call that Marotta and uh, Agnelli were on, and basically it was almost it was like one of these scenes in, uh, like in a comedy show or something like that, where the other seventeen executives or owners started basically lining up to abuse them, and particularly Agnelli. <laughs> it's my turn. And, and, it's my yeah, turn. And, and, and getting into really personal stuff about when he was in his twenties. Ooh. Um, I mean, well, he's roundly disliked. Uh, I, I don't think he's he's ever really cared about that. And I think that's the interesting thing when you look at um, Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli, who are seen as the, the ringleaders. They could not care less about being liked. And they could not care less about fans' absorption of their policies. I'll t- tell you what, though. It did make me... I said this elsewhere earlier in the week... Um, it's made me think a lot about the Cristiano Ronaldo transfer, actually. When we look at the way that Agnelli 
mm. runs football and the way he looks at things. Now, of course, it was sold at the time as, well, th- this is this is the guy who's going to push us over the top to the Champions League. We've reached, we've reached the Champions League final twice in three years, but now we've got the ultimate finisher at the head of it. It's worth paying that much because he is the guy who's going to score the goals that's, that's, that's going to see us over the line. Of course, now, hindsight is a wonderful thing and we know that through no on-pitch fault of Cristiano Ronaldo's, um, Juventus are further away than they ever were, partly due to the enormous wages they play in, the ensuing unbalance in the squad, all that sort of stuff. But what I, th- what I think's funny is you, you look at it now and because this league was clearly never about sporting excellence, I mean, that is the, of the many insulting things that, Perez and and Yelly have said perhaps the idea that this is some sort of sporting pinnacle is perhaps the the biggest insult. And we're not we're not getting to, into Arsenal and Spurs here or any, any, anything like that because I, I don't think that's important or productive. But it just leads you back to you think the the way that Ronaldo signing, especially after they went out of the Champions League to Porto, mm-hmm. is painted as not a failure. It's like, well, look at the commercial deals that yeah. they've got since Cristiano Ronaldo's arrived. Look at the amount of um, Instagram follows we've had, Facebook impressions we've had, and all that sort of stuff. And you think, actually, maybe... I think it's reasonable to suggest that sport was maybe the last thing on Agnelli's so mind this, when yeah. when Ronaldo came in. And it's why this week has been so great because because we've talked about this sort of thing in the pod so much. And there has been that sense that that really came to a head this week that we were all powerless. That like I mean, those of us who just love football for what it is and football and the previous variety of European football, and we were all powerless as basically true a cartel, to use Kirst Armour's word, of executives and owners, they were bringing the game away, and especially the top end of the way, to something that we were all uncomfortable with, that was something that was so nakedly commercial and just just fell to off. And finally, that's just been battered back. And I, I, you know, from speaking to people within UEFA this week and at various other stakeholders, you know, it's just it's been made so clear, at least for, in, from the in the short to the medium term, that this Super League they don't have a market for it. Mm. Uh, okay, they might have a lot of passive followers around the world, but there's just such a will against it. That's I, what I found the most remarkable thing. When uh, I mean, it's remarkable anyway that, um, as I said on the ramble earlier this week, that a 74 year old man thinks he knows what 18 and 24 year olds really want out oh, of life and entertainment. Oh, but, I mean, that that's that's ridiculous anyway. That, actually, that's a really interesting point because because I've been talking to people about this this week. Almost, almost not so much the motivation for it, but the the logical foundation of the Super League and why they where they're pushing for it is because they have this idea that football has reached a tipping point, which actually is an interesting conversation in itself. But setting that aside, um, football has reached a tipping point, and uh, it's not interesting to sixteen to twenty four year olds. Uh, now, I'd love to see their workings because you took from the people I've spoken to, and obviously, and so many working groups. Actually, football has never been healthier in terms of interest. Yeah. Now, I mean, even even anecdotally, yeah. that's nonsense. Exactly, but the exactly. thing is, if you're selling this as a way to make money out of the Champions yeah. League, you've got to look at the spending power of people 35 for upwards. The, these are the people who are more likely to stream and less likely to spend actual yeah, money yeah, on it. Exactly. I, I mean, what, 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 like the foundation of their argument is basically they took the studies that actually show 
football is in a really healthy state because say in, in the UK alone I think it's 50 to 60% uh, interest across all age groups which is actually remarkable relative to anything else mm. they spun down and said oh well 40-50% of people don't like football that's you know <laughs> and I, and I, it really is as simple as that that's the, uh, but, but what's also amazing for, for these guys that consider themselves commercial geniuses and all this basically to go like <laughs> to, to quote Corrado Soprano they couldn't sell it they, they, they couldn't sell their idea that that's the great failure of it. Uh, where do, where do you think this leaves Perez and and Yelly now? Because these are two of the biggest names in in, in European football, and they've overplayed their hand to the degree they, they've been embarrassed. Whichever way you look oh, at it, they've the, been they've been humiliated. Yeah. This year. we can enjoy that. Yeah. I, I think we can enjoy that. But where do you think it it leaves them? Um, well, I suppose P- Perez is just because of the way the Madrid structure has almost been gerrymandered to, Mm. so so what, you can only, you have to have been working as an executive for a certain number of years, you have to have a certain amount of money, it basically almost leaves one candidate, so he's almost unassailable in the Madrid job. That's a a bit of news that's kind of squeaked under the door while all this has been happening, isn't it? Uh, So there is a lot of external pressure on him though, Uh, and I suppose it's the same in Agnelli, just because of his family history, he's not under real pressure there at least within the club but outside I mean I mean, if he resigned he would get replaced by a, a sympathiser yeah exactly exactly yeah. exactly. But, but but just as relevantly though these guys have lost all credibility and clout in European football and, yeah. and also this is such a crucial point they've lost their big bargaining chip the reason the reason football is as it is the reason these clubs are at their size is because for the last 30 years they've always dangled the threat of a Super League over everything it's basically the root cause the influence over every single decision taken in football right? and especially in terms of Champions League yeah, structure exactly and leading right up to this current Champions League structure from 2024 that we're going to be taking on which always felt like a Super League by stealth anyway yeah completely completely uh, and that's, an, I mean, that's another thing why this is so glorious like, so, someone told me the other day that they, it was obviously they wanted to keep leaks to an absolute minimum and wanted to announce on Sunday night, basically to cause UEFA maximum embarrassment. That was maximum yeah. embarrassment because... Ahead of the Monday announcement. Yeah, it's ahead of the Monday announcement. Yeah. And it just, the way that has actually turned out is just absolutely <laughs> delicious. Um, I, like, I have, I have to say, I was on that Chefferin press conference on Monday and I genuinely felt quite stirred by how he spoke. You know, you got, I got imbued by like this is one thing that was that struck me through it all. I remember like on Monday when or on Sunday night when I was when I was kind of considering or or, or coming to the realization that this is probably going to be reality. And I was thinking about imagine well, like when you watch one of these Super League games. So when you watch a Champions League game, when you watch say Manchester United in Champions League, Real Madrid in Champions League, it's not just a match. It's that. Every single minute of the match is imbued with seven decades of history. That yes. kind of that enriches it. Yes. That, like there's, there's there's a wider context. A Super League which would, has none of that. Uh, and like uh, and I, w- I, w- I was getting quite sad for that that we were, we were mm. going to lose this and have to face this 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 monstrosity. And then so when 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 Sheffern spoke on Monday, it was uh, I really found it quite. And it was difficult not to get imbued with the spirit of of, <laughs> of European football, which mm. for all its faults is still it's one of the great success stories, and it, and and has and has been something very kind of dramatically and emotionally rich over the years. The thing that surprised me is how incompetently done it's been so far. What a complete shambles it's been. It's my dirty secret is I wonder if there is a version of this league that works that people would like. Because the truth is European football is broken in a lot of ways. We have the same clubs winning the leagues over and over again here and there. We have the rich getting ever richer. 
maybe there's a case to be made that just letting them sail off to a European sort of NFL style mega contest is the way to go. Uh, and, and then perhaps there's hope that competition could be more interesting for the rest of us. But they haven't done that at all. They've, they, what they've made, done is not a, not a Super League that includes all of Europe in any sense. These are 12 clubs representing only seven cities in three different countries. And, you know, no one from France, no one from Germany, no one from Portugal, no one from Turkey, no one from Eastern Europe. Yet two teams from Manchester and three from London. This is clearly a nonsense. This, this doesn't represent anyone. They have no positive or progressive vision of anything. It's just the richest clubs in the continent going... Hey guys, we're really rich, and we think well, you'll continue watching us uh, if we just break away from everyone. And I'm not sure that's what'll happen. And just the the degree of laziness and and complacency and incompetence involved so far is quite staggering. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or just to look a plonker. Um, <laughs> no, that's a proper Shakespearean word. And the reason why I mention that is because you talked about how important uh, the culture around this discussion about the Super League is. And there is a comparison. In 16th century England, or London in particular, Shakespeare's theatre was for the masses. That's why they call them penny stalls. That's all we normal people could afford. Since then, it's been appropriated for another audience. There are consequences to all of these um, messing around with culture and communities. It begs the question then, after this collapse of the Super League, Although <laughs> collapse, there are still there's still an argument to shelving suggest the shelving. Yeah, that's that's about that. Shakespeare would have loved you. <laughs> A- anyway, after the shelving of the Super League permanently, hopefully, where does that leave football in Europe? What's next, Andy? Well, obviously, Florentino Perez, at least partly, to try and. I guess, allege the embarrassment that he's, he's been put through, though whether he actually feels that, I think, um, as much as he should is a, is a different question. He's been clear about they want to take it forward, that it's not over. What I think is really interesting is the gap between his rhetoric and that of Agnelli. And he's like, Florentino Perez has been very bullish. In fact, to a degree where he's gone out on El Chiringuito and he's made himself look like a lunatic, really. Like when he suggested there were 40 fans outside Stamford Bridge who were um, paid stooges sent out there by the same people who'd given Cadiz the T-shirts um, that they'd worn before the game against Real Madrid. The Interreal t- t- T-shirts, was it? The, the, um, uh, the, the Earn It T-shirts. Oh, sorry, apologies. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you confirm, anyway, Miguel, that there were 40 fans there? <laughs> I mean, you were there. <laughs> a bit more than 40. <laughs> but, I, I mean, it, uh, I think that the, the fact that he's not ready to take the L yet, but Agnelli, at least partly, is, I think, is when it goes back to what we were talking about, about the, the split in interests 
and the splitting approaches. But, but the Perez thing is interesting. I, I was watching uh, El Larguero's feed last night where Perez did his second big interview of the week. Uh, and of course, on, on Monday, there was that moment when he was on Yeah, El it was Chiringuito. El Larguero, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Monday was El Chiringuito. And like it was put to him in El, on Monday with her you know, you could get thrown out of the league, you could get thrown out of the Champions League and Perez was so confident that that's not going to happen. Uh, and obviously because I, I assume, or I'm putting two and two together here, but he knew of this kind of court ruling that was going to be made in Madrid on the Tuesday. Yes. Uh, but then last night, because <laughs> like, Chefron obviously have told uh, Slovenian media, there's a small chance that Madrid-Chelsea doesn't happen. I, presumably because Madrid are actually still in the Super League. And there was a, there was, there was a, there was a lovely little moment where... Uh, the presenter just reads out I forget his name sorry uh, you know, uh, he reads out Sheffron's quote there's a small chance Madrid Chelsea doesn't play and Perez's face and, and it, 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 it would be it, it would just add to this the, kind of, the, the, the deliciousness of if because of his belligerence right, there, he refuses to take them out of the competition yet it actually cost him a chance at another European Cup but there have been all sorts of questions about punishment or otherwise. And I don't know how any of these big clubs can go back to negotiations with UEFA with any hand to play. Well, Haven't they done themselves in in that respect? I think there's a very, very interesting dynamic there because the thinking within UEFA, I mean, first of all, these whoever's in charge of them, because owners are only ever temporary. And you can see that what Manchester City say. Um the the clubs is inst- these are great institutions European football uh, I mean, yeah. you can't get away UEFA want them involved in European football obviously and so I think the thinking is that it's not the institutions that are at fault and you can see that in the fact that so many managers players and staff were irate at what was going to happen it, so it's the custodians yeah it's, it's not the clubs so the thinking is to basically if, if it's if it's going to be punishments to punish the executives um, and and that is why what was another thing that was so pointed about Sheffron's um, press conference and well, it wasn't so much a press conference it was a rallying call on Monday was that he specifically went for named individuals he uh, like Woodward like Agnelli now it's also interesting that there's all sorts of briefings today as uh, just before we record, record that Woodward quit or he resigned to Manchester United because he wasn't comfortable with the Super League plan well, that's funny given what uh, given what um, <laughs> given what Sheffron said about him on Monday but, but anyway the, the point being that uh, Chefron specifically went for individuals. Because, but everybody's trying to wash their hands off the Super League now, including those specific individuals that Miguel's talking about. Yeah. Uh, also, also, I think when we talk about punishment, I think it's it's, it's not got to be about revenge. That just sows division, and that's not what I want at the moment. Not necessarily uh, revenge, though. No, it's, no I th- it's a penalty, and no. we understand those rules in football. Sure, but I think the biggest penalty is that football moves in a different direction in the future to where these snakes wanted it yeah. to go. I think that's the biggest thing. It's and so now you've got an opportunity that UEFA, they've set out this 20, um, 2024 Champions League, which, you know, as I said, I'm not massively in favour of the format. I, I think it's, it's, it's very super league yeah. which makes it even more remarkable that these clubs decided that it wasn't enough. Um, although obviously it all comes back to TV rights I th- would love to see a little bit of row back on some of the detail what? there and I think that is that is possible now it, yeah. if, the, if it's ever going to be possible it's it's now so yeah exactly exactly there's, there's, there's a spirit through Europe and a, and a window because you know if these big clubs can, what, what's their threat now what's their bargaining ship they, yeah. they, they've overplayed got their nothing. hand they've, they've, got they've, they've blown it mm. but just on the format I've, I've done a piece this morning there's a few interesting things there what, what saddened me slightly was that because I think 
I mean, fo- <laughs> football basically, we like tournaments that are symmetrical and clean. And the Champions League was. It, it did have flaws with the group stage, but basically, four group, or sorry, eight groups of four followed by a knockout. It's just it with two growing through from each group. It's nice and clean. Everything easy to understand. Yeah, and you know it, it, the simplicity of it adds to the kind of the um, the, 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 the yeah the appeal and the richness. To me, uh, it feels like a more bloated yeah. version of the original Champions yeah, League exactly. format in ninety two ninety three. People don't like things so convoluted. You know, you, no, it's like with cricket. As people, as cricket fans have told me, um, don't really know much about cricket, but some of the ICCs change. Like sometimes you almost enjoy it in spite of the uh, the format. Yeah, but, but from what I'm told is. UEFA actually quite like the format and as much as anything they, there's also a feeling that we've had 20 years of this of the 32 uh, club uh, groups of 8 ones yes. so w- why not a little bit of experimentation and I suppose you can see some rationale in, in that although I don't like it but also they like the idea of a few extra games not really out of purposes agreed but because more games does mean more revenue although I th- from what I'm told there's a feeling UEFA overestimated their projections but they do need that revenue because there's obviously a lot of federations that need a lot of money after the COVID crisis. So that, I mean, there is a kind of a semi-altruistic angle to that. Yeah, I mean, that is the most damning thing mm. of everything that's that's come out of Florentino Perez's yeah. mouth, of we can't survive till 2024 oh. under the current situation. I mean, the, the thing is, clearly everyone's been affected by the pandemic, but Real Madrid and Barcelona's problems are not down to the pandemic. Yeah. They are down to running very poorly. And Real Madrid have been lucky because they have been able to say, oh, well, things are tight for us at the moment because we're spending half a billion on bringing the Bernabeu into being the best stadium in world football. And also the second part of that, they've had the circus at Barcelona and the incredibly poor signings at Barcelona to overshadow the bad signings that they've made in recent years. I mean... I, you know, I don't want to beat on Eden Hazard, but you know, leave that, him alone. That looks yeah a terrible deal, and it's only the thin end of the wedge. They've yeah. made a lot of terrible deals, and Zidane is kind of endorsing that point of view by going, "I don't really care," because he's in a better position than most Real Madrid coaches. Yeah. He's been a, in a position to go, you know, I don't care if this guy's yeah. thirty million. I'm not putting him in my team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But ju- just on the um, on the potential to roll back, e- even if we might have to endure the Swiss format for a little bit, I think other elements could definitely. So the one about the four wild cards and getting in coefficients that that could be thrown out. Well, al- already yeah. already the wild cards are down to two teams yeah, yeah. from from a historical yeah. perspective. And, you know, that's meant to cover, say, I don't know, say an example, as I said in the ramble earlier, if Liverpool finish fifth or sixth this season, you know, their performance on the last five would get them in if, if this was the Champions League format now. But do you know what? I think with that, I think we can overplay that in our minds as well because, you know, you go back to the rule change when Liverpool were left out of the, the Champions League before it could yeah, have been yeah. left out of the Champions League beforehand. I mean, you know, look where they finished in 2005 and an exception was made yeah. in 2005 and that led into a rule change. And that in itself was a tidying up of something, wasn't it? Because yeah. if you go back before that to when Real Madrid won the Champions League under Jupp Heynckes, they finished what, fifth, fifth yeah, that fifth. year. And Real Zaragoza were just told by 
the league. Not, yeah. Well, I'm sorry you finished fourth and you haven't qualified for the Champions League, but you finished fourth and you haven't qualified yeah, for yeah, the Champions yeah, yeah. League. Cheerio. So yeah. that was just a, a, a tightening of that. So to pretend this sort of stuff didn't happen before is, well, yeah. I think, a bit of a misreading yeah. of history. But but another reason this is hopeful in all this and why I think you're you're absolutely right, this, this, this is going to go away from the direction they wanted and to where we wanted, which is ultimately... Mm. Uh, basically, a, a European football which is more sustainable, more stable, and with a much gre- much better competitive variety, preserving right? the sport element of yeah, yeah, it yeah, ahead exactly. of just entertainment. And, and yeah. where and where we suddenly have teams like that, say a Nantes from the nineties or a Dyn- Shevchenko Dynamo Kiev, where these teams they come to play them, and you don't and people don't bemoan the fact they're there because they're the team is not like good and unfashionable because they actually they keep their players and are, and are much more competitive. Mm. One of the, one of the reasons that could start to happen is because. Right, basically, European football has been in a negative cycle. Obviously, all these clubs are commercial behemoths because they're, they're commercial power and all the rest of it. But that is also partly because of Champions League prize money, which has been a hugely distortive effect. It's 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 inflated these clubs, and in some cases, it's destroyed domestic leagues, especially in second and third yeah, tier leagues. They're exactly. always talking. All these clubs are always talking about, oh, if they don't get into yeah, the Champions exactly. League, it is financial disaster. Exactly, exactly. But but the reason that has happened is because obviously. The, the big clubs have argued, well, <laughs> they want, a, it really comes down to something as simple as they want a, a greater part of the pie and they want more influence. And so... They want a permanent spot yeah, in the yeah. Champions League draw. Yeah, yeah. so, so one, one of the absolute keys to, uh, to European football in this regard in the Champions is that, and, and the one way that things could have been balanced out, it's basically about redistribution of resources. That was the only way this could have been levelled out. So that means you increasing UEFA solidarity payments, which is basically the money towards all the clubs that don't qualify for Europe so that the, the, those in Europe don't stretch away. Now, the European League's body, they ideally wanted that figure at 25%. In every single cycle of negotiation since, the big clubs, and it's specifically the big clubs, they've got that figure down to under 8%. Oh. So, so this is something that, again, even 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 if that's tackled, let's get to, some, to, to somewhere more where it's a bit more equitable, you're going to see quite, you know, Gradual effect and more and knock-on effects, and as was put to me by someone involved in these discussions over the, yesterday, basically, um, rather than a negative cycle, you can create a virtuous cycle where where the money swirls around and there's just a greater parity, and a greater mm. parity is is just better for sport. I mean, th- this is the big thing with this. All all, all these the, these clubs, or sorry, these executives, what they're driven by is the idea of perpetual growth, and as we know, outside football, perpetual growth it it, it starts to erode, you know the social contract and and it's exactly the same in European mm. football and, you, and p- 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 the idea of perpetual financial growth is totally at odds with what football is which is about which exactly. based on, because, exactly because it's Bernie Madoff isn't it essentially God what a crazy few days I am like most people I think relieved that the Super League won't be going ahead um, this isn't the biggest reason to feel this way about it, but I have to admit there was some significant part of me that was just heartbroken at the thought of players from those teams being excluded from the Euros this summer because I've been so looking forward to seeing this Italy team under Roberto Mancini that's really got me excited to watch. So that um, element of it was was um, horrible to me, but I think this idea of a football without meritocracy was just too much for a lot of us to, to take on board and certainly there has been a really significant backlash against that idea in Italy even from people as prominent as uh, Antonio Conte at Inter but it's interesting I do think the conversation in Italy has been less 
overwhelmingly one-sided than perhaps it is in England. I think there has been a sense of, well, yes, um, this was not the solution, but there are problems and problems specifically with UEFA um, expressed most, of course, by Juventus's Andrea Agnelli, who himself might be a persona non grata in a lot of Italian football now, but taken up by others. And I do think there is a feeling that um, just because this wasn't the solution, there are problems that football should not be hiding itself from. But overall, um, I think the reaction to this Super League was still... Um, very much negative and there is a sense of um, relief that it isn't going ahead. There has been other news, footballing news in Europe, which we need to mark. Why would you leave, well, what was certainly last season, the best club in Europe, a walk away and do that your own way, as Frank Sinatra would sing. Hans Dietrich Flick has just done that in Germany, hasn't he? I think there's a few strands to why Hansi Flick has left Bayern. It's it's not a surprise. Maybe the chronology was a surprise to, to some. He announced it to his players in the dressing room after they beat Wolfsburg 3-2 last Saturday afternoon. Um, but he didn't then, announce it to his bosses. Then he went out and talked to Sky about it directly afterwards. At what point did he did he'd, his bosses he'd, know that? He'd already told the bosses oh, like already, three okay. days before. But Bayern like to have control of the news agenda, as I wrote about in the, the Guardian this week. They are not used to coaches who speak up for themselves, which is part of the reason that Hansi Flick has found himself in this sort of position where he wonders, do I want to be here anymore? They gave a bit of a rebuke the following day saying uh, they, they did not enjoy his, uh, d- did not approve of his unilateral communication uh, on, the, on the issue. UDI. And, uh, yeah. Ian Smith knew all about that and Harold Wilson too. And then, um, so since then, there's been a bit of a thawing over it. You know, they don't want to get after him. They don't want to fire him now, as I've heard been suggested in some places. But the reason it's got to this point is because of his poor relationship with the sporting director Hassan Salahamazic. Now, they disagree on everything. Now, where Bayern dropped the ball, I think they have dropped the ball because Hansi Flick, who they look brilliant for appointing as an assistant um, beside Niko Kovac, who they weren't all in on, and he was their sort of break glass in case of emergency, and they had to break that glass pretty quickly um, into Kovac's second season. they look brilliant for like him being their their stash pick and then then bringing out him connecting with the players on an emotional level um tactically transforming the team getting them play the, playing the best football that they've played since Pep Guardiola all of those things but where Bayern dropped the ball is they knew from an early stage that him and Salihamidzic didn't get on they didn't really do anything to address this. And part of that is because they're so invested in Salihamidzic. I mean, they love this idea at Bayern of Bayern DNA. You know, these these sort of former players coming in and running the club. And that's what they've always done in their years of plenty. That's the direction in which they're moving next when Karl-Heinz Rummenigge leaves. Um, Oliver Kahn, who's already on the board, will start to take more responsibility. And it's meant to be a prolonged handover period. Of course, when Philip Lahm retired, they offered him the job of sporting director straight away. He had a look at it and said, well, 
What's my power? What am I actually expected to do? And he said no to it for now. They're interested in Bastian Schweinsteiger for that sort of thing in future. The DNA is absolutely everything as far as Bayern are concerned. But they've invested so hard in Salihamidzic, who a lot of, uh, in terms of time and in terms of political capital, but there are a lot of people who think he's really quite underqualified to be doing this job at a club like Bayern. And really, the relationship with Flick, as it's been left to fester, has not only ultimately driven Flick away. And it was quite interesting when he did his little speech in front of Sky and he said, yeah, I really want to thank uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, uh, Uli Hoeneß, who brought me to the club in the first place, uh, even Herbert Heiner, the chairman, <laughs> as if he was saying, how many more people can I thank who aren't Hassan Salihamidzic. <laughs> the, 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 problem, the problem is, is they've disagreed on pretty much every personnel matter. Now, of course, I think the coach can overstep the mark with the sporting director when it comes to personnel matters. But if Salihamidzic is a stronger, more respected sporting director, he can shut that down more easily. And there's dialogue with the coach rather than giving stuff to him as a fait accompli. Now, one of the final things, and the struggle over Jerome Boateng was a, a huge thing for them mm. the whole time they were there in that he was one of Flick's guys. You know, they wanted to take Boateng out with the trash. They thought he was done. And Flick said, no, I trust you. Even though you have your fitness problems, you're going to be one of my key guys. And he had accordingly an excellent season last season, even though his physical condition hasn't really changed. And then Salah Hamazic says, after Flick goes out there saying, well, I, th I think he should get an extra year. It'd be really nice. I'd really like to be able to rely on him next year. <laughs> and then Salah Hamazic goes, yeah, he's finding a new club for next season. We've, we've spoken to Jerome and he knows what the situation is. And this was one of the, the final things. And really... I think it keys into everything we've been talking about this week, Miguel, about how power and success in the European game, it's not just... Status is earned through having a light touch. Yeah. And I don't think that they've really had that with Salah Hamizic. And clearly, they're going to move on and they're going to continue to be successful. But as I say, I think Bayern have made a ricket here. Yeah. Um I have been actually thinking through all this. Does all just? I mean, obviously, it doesn't go to the dimensions you're talking about, but purely as a coach, um, you can also see the logic in Flick as good as he has at Bayern and wanting to go because I mean, he's won a European Cup there. He hasn't retained it. He's won two. He's got. Well, we'll have two leagues. It's a perfect chance to go out and try. What I what I never it's a cycle yeah. in the modern game, isn't it? What, what I what I never understand though about a lot of. Or basically, if I had the talent to be a top footballer coach, I'd kind of enjoy a more varied career in that sense. Do a few different things. I'd want to do a different yeah. team every year, personally, if it was me. But I think it's I think it's funny because you look at where they'll go next on, uh, and there are really few interesting candidates. What about where Hansi Flick will go next? Do we know? Uh, he's he's going to go to take the Germany job. He's yeah. going to succeed uh, mm. Joachim Löw as the, the the Germany coach, and I know a lot of people outside Germany will see that as a as a step down, swapping as you say, perhaps the the best club in Europe over the last eighteen months for a national team job. It's a massive deal for him, and you know he's he's got real scope to improve them because they're they're not in an amazing state at the moment. So who will then replace Flick 
at Bayern Munich. Uh, there are a couple of contenders that I'm thinking of who speak pretty good German. <laughs> well, they bloody should do. Um, Julian Nagelsmann is an interesting one. Um, he's the early favourite. He's expensive to spring because he's got two years left on his contract at Leipzig and it's 20 million euros, the reputed re- release clause. God, having that's as much as having a player. Exa- but why, why do we never think of coaches, the guys who can make and break your season, at the same value as, as players or at least at a decent value? Coaches are like goalkeepers in that sense, really, yeah. aren't they? They're of immense value, but no one ever wants to pay for them. <laughs> yeah, but- yeah. It's one thing I, I, I do wonder when we're going to reach a world where it will have transfer fees for managers. Yeah, I thought I thought Village Boas was going to be the start of that when yeah. Chelsea paid fifteen million to to get him out of Porto. But I think when you bear in mind, as you say, it's one of those things where you go, "Whoa, that much for coach!" But in recent times, and obviously Bundesliga clubs do like to get their ducks in a row quite early. You think of the move of Eintracht Frankfurt's Adi Hütter to Borussia Mönchengladbach, what week and a bit ago. 7.5 million euros. If Gladbach are paying 7.5 million euros for a coach, I'm pretty sure Bayern can stretch to 20. Of course, Nagelsmann's Bavarian. Um, he has shown before that it, it was is a job he would love to consider at the right time. I think this is the right time if they can get it all done financially and if he can make it right with Leipzig because they've got a young team. And he's great with young players. He loves a young, dynamic team. He's a young, dynamic coach. And the fact that now, and of course, Neuer and Lewandowski um, and Müller continue to be very important. But it feels to me as if the power is shifting at Bayern to that young core of Goretzka and Kimmich, who are so close and complementary on and off the pitch. Um, They are new Bayern going forward. And of course, you've got you know, Serge Gnabry, Alfonso Davies, Jamal Musiala, all these players are going to get better and better and better. And that's why it seems so exciting when Flick won the Champions League last year because you're thinking, shit, this Bayern team could be the best team in Europe for like two, three, (laughs) four, five years. They could completely eclipse uh, eclipse that Real Madrid team that won won three in a row. Yeah, Um, I I mean, I still like, they're still probably the best team in Europe, I'd say, actually. They're just unlo- I mean, it's just the nature of the Champions League and the nature of the super clubs. Yeah. That there's not that much difference between them. And basically, this, this kind of came down to Lewandowski not being there. If he was there an the- extraordinary amount of injuries yeah. altogether. All, all I think even if Goretzka's fit for the second mm. leg, they, they maybe go through. Yeah. Of course, the other name, and this is the, the final bit, I suppose, off the off the Super League chat, I know we keep going back to it, but it's unavoidable after this week, is that after Jurgen Klopp was rather hung out to dry mm. by the club at, at Elland Road, someone... Shocking, uh, actually. Uh, 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 yeah. Karl-Heinz uh, Rummeniger was asked pretty shortly after the, the Leeds-Liverpool game, um, would you consider Jurgen Klopp <laughs> for your vacancy? <laughs> and he, he went, well, he's not free at the moment, <laughs> which is not a no. It's, yeah. it's, it's definitely not a yeah, no. No, no, is no it, in it, my dictionary anyway. Is it? So that could be one heck of a short It's not list. a nine either, um, if you see what I mean. No. It's that time, gentlemen, where we ask you to consider a game of the week that we can feast our eyes on um, this weekend. Uh, where should we start? Miguel, do you have a game of the week? Uh, I was actually going to go, I, mean, to be, I have to say, <laughs> with the week has been in, I almost forgot that there's actually football being played. <laughs> um, 
I, it's one of the things, again, because it did feel like, because the future of football was so uncertain, that this season felt utterly irrelevant. Whereas that's now, obviously, thankfully, we're back to, to football mattering. Uh, I'm going to go for, maybe fittingly, given everything, Mets Paris Saint-Germain, uh, given that how interesting that title race in France is. And, and also how on the line that every PSG game now seems, which is, you know, invigorating given the, the recent history of French football. Mets are decent to watch and as well, they gave Lille a really good game a couple of weeks ago. Lille won that game in the end, but they, they were lucky to. I think this is going to be unprecedented for On the Continent. I'm going to go for a game from the same league <laughs> <laughs> from uh, Sunday night. Uh, Lyon versus Lille. Now bear in mind that as Miguel says, it's tight at the top. Three points between the top four at the moment. Lyon start the weekend in fourth and Lille start the weekend in first place. If Lyon beat them, Lyon go above them. That's how tight it is. Mm. And there are some big games coming up in the next couple of weeks. Lyon, they play Lille this weekend and then they go to Monaco next weekend. And Monaco have been the, the informed team getting themselves into third place only uh, two points from the top it's super super tight it's it's the league to watch two great uh, suggestions uh, Miguel you look a lot less frazzled now than <laughs> when we began this podcast just goes to show what OTC can do yeah for there you. you go yeah what has occurred this week, regardless of the situation being resolved, is nothing less than a tragedy and a further swipe at the game being taken away from the people that matter most. That's you, that's me, that's everyone, the fans. This week has been something that has struck a chord with those fans that follow their club up and down the country, that were taken to games as a child by family who go to the pub before and after games with their friends. My first game inside a football stadium was at Roker Park, Sunderland's old ground before they moved to the Stadium of Light. My grandfather took me, and despite nearly freezing to death, it was an experience that stuck with me. I'm sure many listeners have had the same type of match-going experience. It's probably a large part of why you love the game right now. And even though things change and they become worse and we utter that the game's gone, it's sometimes just really, really hard to shake it. It should never be taken away or changed, though. The game has sadly become about money and greed rather than getting a bus or train with your mates and watching your team carve out a shitty nil-nil draw. It's become about Allegri, Perez and Co, the European Super League. They have become the rulers and we should do everything we can to keep fighting that. Those Chelsea fans who turned up outside their stadium and all the others as well who have organised protests. That's what needs to keep happening. Change needs to be made, not just for these guys, but also at FIFA and UEFA. Everyone needs to look at themselves right now in football. This should be a watershed moment for the game, one in which change takes place all across the board. And I'm not just talking about, you know, this money with new tournaments. I'm talking about racism, ticket prices, TV subscriptions and more. It all needs to change. It all needs the same energy. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.